Well, it is our uh, great privilege to open the Word of God this morning and to study, uh, to rally around the truth and pray that the Holy Spirit will assist our understanding of His great truth. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, but I want to say that anyone who reads the Bible, even on a surface level, cannot help but notice that God's ways are not our ways. In fact, God himself declared this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if you know God's ways, which he has clearly defined in his word, the Bible, and you have embraced them as your own because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know how difficult it is to convince others who are not Christians to abandon their own sacred ways of life and embrace God's ways too. Very difficult. Those who live under the sun but not under God's loving, shepherding hand have a very different outlook on life. And the best way really, for them to walk it. Very different. The sage of Proverbs tells us, in no uncertain terms, that this is true. He says, there is a way which seems right to a person. That person of whom he speaks is not a wise person, but a foolish person, which in this context could also refer to an unbeliever, a skeptic. And the long and short of it is that to choose one's own ways above God's perfect ways is really a tragic choice. In fact, the sage of Proverbs puts it more severely. He says, its end is the way of death. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Christians in Rome, reminding them of their former ways before their conversion. And he says this in chapter 6, verse 21. Therefore, what gain were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death very interesting question the question is a rhetorical one the answer is obvious there was no gain at all that the Roman Christians were deriving from their own sinful ways of life when they were unbelievers no gain at all no compensation no lasting satisfaction. In fact, their ways would lead eventually to death and loss. But when they accepted God's ways, and especially the way of salvation in Christ, they were freed from the bondage of life destined for frustration and futility and great loss at the end and gained eternal life. Paul put it this way, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This marvelous truth is not a reality for many in the world. We know that. They have no clue that it even exists. They're stuck in bondage to their own sinful ways of doing things, thinking that somehow they will overcome. Those of us who 
know God's ways and have made God's ways our ways and know better, well, we have a tough assignment to reason with them with a view to showing them a better way. As Paul did in Romans 6, so we need to explain first how their way leads to death so that they might realize just how desperate they are. And then second, explain God's way of life that they may appreciate it and embrace it. The sage of Ecclesiastes shows us how to do this in our text this morning, and I'm excited to open it up for you. As we argued last time, there is a strong evangelistic element to Ecclesiastes. The sage wants to prepare unbelievers to receive the good news of the truth by highlighting it against the backdrop of bad news. Now, he's been painting that backdrop since the very beginning of our study of Ecclesiastes, and he's added more to it in verses 1 to 8. He made the point there that God the Creator gives life and has defined it within hard and fast parameters, ordaining everything in its time, all events, all circumstances, every situation, to the minutest detail, so that all history will go according to his plan. That's verses 1 to 8. And that brief discussion of God's divine appointments forms a nice foundation for what comes next in our text this morning, verses 9 to 15. We might sum up this entire passage this way. To de uh, God determined to frustrate those who seek lasting satisfaction in a world they neither control uh, nor comprehend, that he may lead some humbly to receive his better way which is eternal and immutable, perfect and comprehensive, and evokes reverential fear for him as the judge of all things. Now, that's a mouthful. I took the opportunity to publish that in your bulletin along with uh, the outline that will flesh this out. So let's explore it together. We want to see, first of all, that God determined to frustrate those who seek lasting satisfaction in a world that they cannot control. Now, this is a truism. It's a truism that we need to explain to our non-Christian friends because they're very much under the impression that life is their own, right? Life is what you make of it, they tell you, and they believe that they can actually achieve lasting satisfaction apart from a holy and eternal God in his universe run by his will. I know it sounds silly, but that's what they believe. So the sage restates all the more vigorously his thesis. And he puts it in a rhetorical question for emphasis. He says, what benefit is there for the worker from that in which he labors? Can you hear the challenge in his question? In essence, he's saying, tell me, what, what benefit is there? Go on, tell me. Prove to me that life outside a relationship with God is not futile, that it's not a futile endeavor. What possible compensation is there for the godless person who labors within the confines of these divine appointments? No one by his own strength will and will can control or manipulate life 
so as to achieve the rewards that he or she so earnestly seeks after. That's what the sage is really saying in this challenging question. Now, we, of course, know this, right? We know this. It's been the refrain of the sage throughout these first three chapters. Does he really need to restate it again for his readers, and so vigorously? Well, yes, he does. And he'll go on to restate it some more, and I'll tell you why. The repetition of certain vital elements of our gospel presentation is necessary to keep our listeners focused on the issues. If you know anything about evangelism, then you know that unbelievers have a way of evading issues that are uncomfortable for them. And they'll try to redirect the conversation to get you off track. But when they do, you need to bring them right back. Don't move off something unle- uh, something, or move on to something else, rather, until you're satisfied that you've made your point and that your listener understands it. Direct the discussion. And this is what the sage does in verse 9. It seemed good to him to restate his thesis just to make sure that his readers haven't forgotten it. He wants to highlight it, especially after having introduced some new information into the discussion back in verses 1 to 8, that being God's divine appointments. And here is something else that we should take note of that's also important. He not only repeats his thesis, but he frames it in a rhetorical question which is meant to draw a certain answer, right? Now, rhetorical questions are what we might call leading questions. What's a leading question? It's a, it's a kind of question that prompts a listener to give the answer that you want them to give. Lawyers use this questioning all the time with witnesses on the stand. You lead a person by this kind of questioning to realize your point by the way he answers. The point the sage wants his listeners to see is this. Anyone who lives outside of a relationship with God will not find lasting satisfaction in life and will be plagued with frustration because of that. That's what he wants them to know. Anyone who lives under the sun can verify this even by his or her own experience. This is so true. Think about this. Frustration is a sad and constant part of life, is it not? People do everything they can to avoid being frustrated. But they're bound to be frustrated because God appointed unchangeable and unavoidable limits to define their lives. And they are universally understood and experienced. Everyone knows that there is a time to be born and a time to die, and that no one has any say in either activity. Everyone lives somewhere between happy and sad, unity and disunity, killing and healing, searching and giving up, and so on. Now, It wouldn't take much to get an unbeliever to admit to these reality boundaries and the frustration that comes with them. But he's not about to admit that the God of the Bible ordained them. That's the tricky part, but that part 
Or that's the part, really, of a biblical worldview that we have to now develop for him. And we're ready to do that right now in the text. The sage moves on from life experiences that proves to people just how futile life is to a theological explanation. Life experiences already taken care of in verses 1 to 8. Now he moves to a theological explanation. Here's the explanation, or the, the statement first. He says, God determined that their seeking would be guided by ignorance. That's in verses 10 to 11. The sage speaks now from his worldview. He says in verse 10 that God has actually ordained that people who have no need for him would search endlessly for lasting satisfaction in life. It would be an endless search, a futile search. Notice, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of mankind with which to occupy themselves. And we already know that's a futile task. There can be no other result for those under the sun. It has to be this way. God has tasked them with this endless and fruitless search. Now, I might illustrate this truth with something that you may or may not know. It's called planned obsolescence. That ring a bell? It's a known procedure of the world in the world of economics and industry, planned obsolescence. Essentially, a company designs obsolescence right into a device that they market so that when they sell it to you, Sooner rather than later, the device will simply stop doing what it was advertised to do, prompting you to buy their new and latest product. It's very clever. It sounds unethical, if not illegal, but the law says it's neither. So how is your phone working? Is it functioning well? Exhibiting any strange behavior? Maybe a little slow? Maybe the screen's a bit faded? Well, if you've had it for a few years, these problems might sound eerily familiar. Well, what you don't realize is that there is somebody sitting somewhere in some cubicle who just pushed a button that negatively affects your phone's, phone's performance. I kid you not. Now, the parallel here that I want to make with God's design of human beings is this. God has designed fallen individuals so that, so that their, the consequences of their sin will have certain effects on their life. Certain unavoidable effects. And one of those effects is that certain futility and frustration will accompany their search for lasting satisfaction in life. Guaranteed. They will search, they will search, but they will not find. Human beings were designed, you see, to delight in God. And those who have rejected him will cling to unworthy substitutes to delight in that cannot possibly promise everlasting happiness and satisfaction. They forsake the fountain of their eternal life for broken cisterns that can hold no water, as Jeremiah once said. And that's the way that God has ordained depraved human nature to be in a fallen world. Paul knew this only too well when he wrote Romans 1. 
Listen to verses 28 to 31. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God so gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Now, some might call this divine sabotage. Call it what you will. The truth is God directs everything to certain ends, including a godless lifestyle that he is determined to battle frustration throughout its lifespan and then come up empty when all is said and done. This first part of verse 11 gives us the bottom line. God has made everything appropriate in its time. And there is not one thing that anybody can do about it. Not one. The sage doesn't stop here. No, there's more bleak background to come in the second part of verse 11. Let's read it. God has also set eternity in their heart without the possibility of making... Of, of mankind, that mankind will find out the work which God has done from beginning even to the end. Now, what does that mean? Well, in addition to people's experience of God's divine appointments, a time to be born, a time to die, they also have a sense that life is much bigger than they are, that there's more about life than meets the eye. They have this sense, especially when they look out at a vista, see a big mountain, see the, the birth of, uh, of a baby chick. We would say that they are sensing God's beautifully fitted and perfect eternal plan for the ages. This is because God has woven into the very fabric of, human, of the human soul this awareness it was given to Adam to appreciate God's majesty. Now, this sense was not lost in the fall, but the ability to put this sense to good use was. So people may have a sense of the past and of the future, but they have no ability to know both well or how each relates to the other. Try as they may to make sense of everything, they'll not be successful. At best, they'll misinterpret life. Now, if all of what we're, uh, that we've covered from verses 9 to 11 sound rather gloomy and hopeless, uh, then you're getting it. Because that's exactly what the sage wants his readers to think. That's exactly what we want those that we evangelize to think as well. The sage's approach is quite different from the popular approach of American Christianity and the, and the church growth movement, who like to bring happy, cheery news to unbelievers in hopes of getting a confession. Our goal is not to get a confession, but to represent God fairly and accurately, knowing that as we do, he will be pleased to bring about faith and repentance at the right time. So let me just say that 
if you dispense with the doom and gloom, with the bad news as the sage has laid it out with God orchestrating it, well then any good news that you bring will be absolutely empty and powerless. And those who embrace it will do so not out of a sense of desperation, that they are at odds with a holy God. No, rather out of a desire to add more happiness and pleasure to their lives, that they may cancel out their ongoing frustrations. But it will be short-lived because they are neither trusting in the right message nor motivated to trust for the right reasons. For our unbelieving friends to see just how good the gospel is, they must truly understand how dire their situation is as a fallen individual in a fallen world that is run by God's decrees. Now, now that the sage has done this, he changes directions rather abruptly in verses 12 and 13 and makes the point now that God ordained the unbeliever's search for lasting satisfaction to be frustrating and futile so that he might lead some humbly to receive a better way. What's this? A ray of hope? Yes. The God of the Bible is not only sovereign, but he's good, too. What a relief. You would never want a bad sovereign running things. We see that there is a purpose now to the way that God has ordained life the way he has. It's to save people from it. Huh. Who would have thought? Someone that you talk to about the faith is likely to become rather hopeless at the start of your discussions, if you're doing it right. And I say that because at some point, and that's usually at the beginning of your evangelistic outreach, you, you'll help him to see that God has intended him to experience the futility of life. And it's good to belabor that. It's good to belabor this bad news so that he can really understand just how trapped and hopeless his sin has made life for him. And when you think the time is right, then you shift gears and you shine the ray of hope on the situation and talk to him about the better way, the best way, in fact, the way out as well as the way in. We've referred to it already as the ideal way of life back in chapter 2, verse 26. The sage introduces it again in verses 12 and 13. He says, I know, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every person who eats and drinks seeks good in all his labor. Beloved, this is a grace of God. He has a better way. He has the ideal way to live for godless people under the sun. It's characterized by an enduring re rejoicing in life, a life worth celebrating, a life that produces works of righteousness, all of which brings the experience of lasting gain. As one commentator rightly put it, quote, this kind of work is indeed the only kind that makes sense in a world 
where the actions of God are utterly decisive. A world where God's work is the only work that lasts forever, being incapable of alteration and human effort. End quote. Now, any sane person listening to the sage's presentation would have to be excited. After all, what, what gospel life offers individuals who embrace it really amounts to everything that they want out of life anyway, only to an infinitely greater degree. The next obvious question that this person might ask is, how do I get this? Where do I go to find this? What do I do that I'm not already doing in order to obtain this? Now, you understand, don't you, why a non-Christian would ask that question? Well, it's because he's works-oriented, right? After all, if, if they've been destined by God to work toward a futile end, what else would we expect but a works-oriented mentality? This is how people think. Even religion, man's substitute for the true faith, is based on human merit. Man working his way to God. And you might imagine more skepticism when you respond by saying, no, oh my dear friend, no, this ideal way of living is a gift from God that you need to receive. And that's the last word of verse 13. This is the gift of God. The ideal life is a gift. People cannot manufacture it. They cannot obtain it on their own merits. They cannot somehow procure it. It's impossible. It's beyond their reach, beyond their ability to secure, because God must give it, and people must receive it humbly for what it is, a gift. It should be obvious to us from our study, certainly from just this short text, if not from our entire study of Ecclesiastes up to this point, that everything written here points us to the undeniable fact that God has so orchestrated depravity to end in frustration so that he might lead the depraved to himself and gift them a new life that promises lasting gain. Again, this is the grace of God. The last word from the sage in verses 14 and 15 underscore this important fact. Here's how we might sum that up. God's ways are eternal and unchanging, perfect and comprehensive, and evoke reverential fear for him as the judge of all things. I want you to notice the sage introduces the work of God himself which we know to be his will, his plan for the ages. And he states that it is eternal and unchanging. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. It's the opposite of the fleeting work of human hands under the sun. Now, why is it important to mention the eternal and changing ways of God? Well, to show that no one can improve on God's ways. They are perfect and they are comprehensive. Look at the rest of verse 14. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. So this declaration reminds us of God's command to Israel in Deuteronomy not to add to his word or take away from it. 
And then the warning which Jesus Christ himself gave, uh, repeats this warning to John in the book of Revelation. Both commands are the same, since God's ways are a manifestation of his will in Scripture. The only way we know God's perfect will for ourselves, for people under the sun, for the world, and for history, is from Scripture. And the great thing about the perfect, eternal, and unchangeable works of God is that they are meant to evoke a proper fear of him from all people under the sun. Look at the last part of verse 14. And God has so worked that people will fear him. I want to mention yet a third time that this marvelous grace of God, uh, that, that, that this action rather is the marvelous grace of God. We've argued this point in this small text this morning, I think clearly and convincingly, God has ordained that depraved people, that is those without a relationship with him, will necessarily seek and not find. They'll thirst, and they'll not be satisfied. They'll hunger, but they won't be filled, to use Jesus' figures. They will be entangled, that they would be entangled in an endless and futile search for lasting satisfaction in life, and experience the frustration that comes with that search. Why? So that God might lead some to receive his better way. That's what Paul meant when he told the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers at the Areopagus in Acts 17. Verses 26 and 27, Paul says, God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Interesting. What a statement that is. And in an evangelistic message at that, God ordained divinely appointed times in history for each individual, every single one of them, marking out the boundaries of even where they would live, all with the purpose in mind to lead some of them to find him. No doubt Paul knew Ecclesiastes well. The bottom line of God's way, which is designed partly to bring about people's salvation by creating an impossible way of life for them that would lead them first to their frustration and acknowledgement of God in his holy ways and then second to embrace him out of reverential fear is to rescue people from his coming judgment. That's the bottom line. Look at the last word, of the sage in verse 15. That which is, is what has already been, and that which will be, has already been, and God seeks what has passed by. Uh, this rendering in verse 15 by the New American Standard Bible, which I just read to you, is somewhat mysterious at first because it's rather literal, particularly the last clause, God seeks what has passed by. Now, seeking here cannot mean that God discovers or finds out what's happened in the past, since God knows all things at once, both past and present, and more importantly, because he determined it all before it even happened. Now, that's what the first part of the verse is getting at. What is current 
has already taken place and what will happen has already taken place. In other words, God is really outside of time. He sees everything happening before him at once, the past, the future, the present. The seeking in the last clause, then, is in contrast, really, to human seeking that leads to futility and turns up empty. God's seeking will not turn anything up empty. With God, he will look at the past, in fact, all past human deeds at the end of time in order to settle accounts. That's what this means. Or to say it another way, he will bring light to, light, uh, to one's entire life before his judgment seat and judge it justly. He will call it to account. The idea is understood clearly, I think, in light of the next section that we will study next time, verses 16 to 22, which talks about human justice. But there you have it. Can we, can we confirm what we've argued from Ecclesiastes by the New Testament? Well, yes, we can. Actually, we've already done so already, really with Romans 6, 22 to 25 in our introduction, but our Scripture reading this morning also gives some confirmation. It was 2 Corinthians 5, 14-6-2, and how infinitely better it is to be emancipated from an under-the-sun worldview and its deadly implications and given an above-the-sun worldview and all the benefits that come with it. That's what that passage is really about. Let me just highlight some principles for you. Number one, God's perfect way in Christ now controls us. Verse 14, Paul says, for the love of God controls us. You see, Jesus' saving love showed, showed to us on the cross that substitutionary atonement is now our life principle. His saving love is our motivating, driving force. It controls us. Also, God's perfect way in Christ change, changed us and is changing us. Verse 15, it says, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus' saving and redeeming love that he demonstrated when he died for us changed us, so that we now live for him, not for ourselves, as we used to as fallen individuals under the sun. God's perfect way also in Christ changed our thought process. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have kn we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Paul is saying that as a result of being changed, we don't evaluate people by human worldly standards anymore. We evaluate Christ one way as lost people under the sun, but as believers, we see him differently. Also, God's perfect way in Christ changed our nature. That's verse 17. We ourselves have been made over. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, crea cre new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, all things have come. Paul tells us that these changes that result in us because of the loving substitutionary death of Christ, 
that reconciled us to God is the essence of the Christian life. And it comes from the hand of a sovereign God. He gives it to us as a gift. As a recipient, Paul Paul couldn't keep quiet about it. He, like all Christians, have become ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us, he says, verse 20. And the appeal, the appeal is to abandon your own futile ways of obtaining lasting satisfaction and embrace God's way of eternal life. That's the appeal. And Paul put it this way in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a truth. There's a great urgency for others to embrace this gift of God. Great urgency. God has appointed all things in its time. He tells skeptics out there that right now is the appointed time to receive God's gift. Now, God says, is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for your goodness to us and for this passage, for your word, which is eternal and immutable. And we're glad, so glad that we can understand it in Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that we will be good ambassadors and that we will bring the good news to those uh, whose Life has been destined to a futile chase for lasting gain. We pray that we might aid in helping them to see this, that we might introduce them to the better way, the way of Christ and eternal life, which is lasting gain. For your glory and for the benefit of your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.